Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. So welcome everyone to this week's Corner Table Talk. I am your host, Brad Johnson. You know, I've been hearing the term food desert often in the last several years to bring attention to the lack of healthy food options in less affluent neighborhoods around the country. While at Post and Beam, I was interviewed and asked about our decision to open in South LA and our concept. We had a garden in the on the patio. We were growing tomatoes and squash and herbs. And the term food desert was mentioned in reference to our location. It was my first time hearing it. I I understood the intent behind the term, but also felt it necessary to acknowledge the many mom and pop places that had been serving South L.A. for years. Places like Mel's Fish Shack, Harold and Bell, Simply Wholesome and Doolin's. They were all nearby. Yet I also understood the lack of healthy, fresh and affordable food in some hard hit areas and an overabundance of fast food places. In 2016, I read an article in The New York Times about a new food concept called Every Table, and it got my attention immediately. I made a beeline to their storefront to check it out and happened to meet the founders, Sam Polk and David Foster. Every Table is a social enterprise on a mission. Their purpose to transform the food system to make delicious and healthy food affordable and accessible to everyone everywhere. Their company goal, every table in every major metropolitan area across the country. We're going to talk to to Sam and to uh, Chef Bryce about that. Having gotten to know the founders, I've really come to admire this company and the people who work there. Of course, it flows from the top. So my guests today are Sam Polk founder and CEO of Every Table. Sam is also an author, the book For the Love of Money, chronicling his journey from Wall Street to advocate for food justice and an equitable world. Sam left a successful career on Wall Street to follow his dream and fight uh, food food injustice and inequality. Also joining us is Chef Bryce Flewellen. Bryce is the executive director of Every Table Social Equity Franchise Division. Chef Bryce has fought for food justice and social and social equity. That's a tongue twister for food justice and social equity for more than twenty years. Developing and implementing strategic programs at Starbucks, Magic Johnson Enterprises, the American Heart Association, and um, to benefit underserved populations and communities. A, a few quick facts before we jump in here. Founded in 2015 by Sam and his business partner, David Foster, Every Table offers made from scratch meals priced according to what is affordable in a specific neighborhood. That's a pretty unique idea. I love it. And to date, they have sold over 8 million meals throughout Los Angeles. It's a combination of grab and go markets, home delivery service, smart fridge vending machines. Their backers include Kimball Musk, Maria Schreiber, Gwyneth Paltrow, Tom Social Enterprise Fund, the Kellogg Foundation, the Annenberg Foundation, and the California Wellness Foundation. So, they also secured $1 million on Shark Tank back in 2018 from Rohan Oza, who is also known as Hollywood's grandfather. So just a really, really impressive uh, endeavor and off to a phenomenal start. Really, really pleased to have both Sam and Bryce join me today. So Sam, Bryce, welcome to, uh, to Corner Table Talk. Thanks, Brad. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you, Brad. Great to have you. So we kick things off with uh, our short order questions, and I'm always curious to know what folks are listening to. So 
Sam, tell me what's uh, what's in your earbuds these days, man. Well, it depends. If I'm a, if I'm if I'm at home, it's Justin Bieber because my seven year old daughter just can't get enough, basically. Um, and then when I'm by myself, I, I'm an old REM fan from back in the day. Okay, all right, REM. Bryce, what about you, Chef? What are you listening to, man? Yeah, yeah. Lately, I've been going back and listening to Miles Davis, kind of blue on some days, and then on other days, I'm a real big hip hop person, so I've been listening to this artist. Uh, named Freddie Gibbs. I'm not that cool. That's something that my my son referred me to. So he keeps me current. <laughs> yeah, my son helps me uh, with my uh, computer illiteracy. But uh, that Miles Davis kind of blue man. That's a that's a Rembrandt of uh, of music, man. You can't can't ever get enough of that one. So Sam, tell me, what's a perfect breakfast? Pan- pancakes all the way. Like I'm a pancakes may be my favorite food of all time. Are you putting bananas or blueberries in them or just straight pancakes? I'll put bananas and blueberries in them, but my kids don't like that, so they just want chocolate chips. <laughs> Got to please the kids, man. It's all about that. Um, Chef Bryce, what about you, man? What's what's a perfect breakfast at your house? I'll say a perfect breakfast would be, uh, you know, chicken and waffles. Now, that's something that I don't eat every day. So my my every day is, you know, good, you know, some oatmeal with some chia seeds, blueberries, bananas, strawberries. Or or lately, hey, let me get a plug real quick. You know, in every table, uh, fresh juice like the beet juice. This <laughs> is something that's really good. So yeah, I saw that on the website that uh, that you guys are, are doing juice. That's 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 uh, really, really cool. Sam, tell me, man, is there a place that you are looking forward to visiting? You know, I think China would be my answer. I've read so much about it, but and it, but it doesn't seem real to me. Yeah, China is great. My wife and I went there uh, about ten years ago, man. We hit Beijing and Shanghai, and it's uh, it is definitely uh, definitely worth a visit. How about you, Chef Bryce? Where are you thinking about traveling to? Yeah, I'm I'm wanting to go to Peru. You know, ever since I heard that they have like two thousand or three thousand varieties of potatoes, similar to what Sam said about China, it's like how, it's hard for me to believe that. There's that many varieties of, of potatoes out there. So that's been on my list. And then obviously that's the home of, you know, quinoa. You know, quinoa has taken over, you know, the last t- t- decade here in the U.S. So just wanted to check out in their culinary scene is supposed to be really good. Yeah, and a hot destination. But the potato thing I had not heard about. That's a, that's a new one for me. So thank you. Sam, is, is there a favorite spice? of yours? I mean, I don't know if it counts, but salt. (laughs) (laughs) That's honest. (laughs) We can count it. (laughs) We can count it. Salt. Okay. Chef, what about you? I would say uh, cinnamon. You know, I I love cinnamon, just the smell of it. Mm -hmm. You know, use it obviously for sweet and then also a lot of folks don't do it, but savory dishes as well. Yeah. Yeah. My wife has been uh, adding cardamom to our uh, smoothies in the morning, man. And I've become a big fan of cardamom. I never thought about it at all, but uh, I love it now. All right. So, Sam, you're putting together a dinner party, a small, intimate dinner party for a couple of people, past or present. Who is it that you would like to host, man, that maybe is no longer with us or somebody that is? Who, who would you like at that table? A couple people. Uh, yeah, I've got some some ones that I would like to talk to. Um, uh, a gentleman by the name of Robert Moses from back in the civil rights era, who was, you know, from the from the reading I've done, just the most intellectual and courageous man that I could sort of ever imagine. I would say uh, Ernest Hemingway, uh, who I'm a you know, huge fan of, and I think he would bring an interesting perspective. And then 
still alive is Father Greg Boyle um, of Homeboy Industries. And, you know, I don't know if you know Father Greg, but he's sort of like the perfect dinner party companion because he's so good, but he also has the funniest, funniest stories about his experience. Wow. That's a, that's a strong lineup, and I and I'm aware of Homeboy Enterprises, but not Father Greg. But, that, but that's that's a strong table. That that would be an interesting night. Chef Bryce, what about you, man? Deceased, I would probably say grandparents, my mother's parents. My my grandfather was an identical twin, six five. Uh, my grandmother was about five feet. They raised eleven kids. They came from you know the south, and just kind of get hearing the stories. And then you know my my oldest aunt, who was part of obviously part of the family, she she helped start a garden. So I just want to hear you know how how you how do you actually take ten kids and move them all the way from Florida to to Michigan, and 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 everyone. Does does ends up doing well. So I would definitely love to talk to them. You know, they passed away when I was really young. Modern day, you know, I'd love to have somebody like Eddie Murphy. I'm a big fan of laughing and, and comedians. So to have somebody at the dinner table like Eddie Murphy and comedians are the best storytellers when we talk about storytelling and narrative. I mean, they, they do it, you know, it seems easy, but I know the time and that goes into it. Um, from an entrepreneur standpoint, you know, have somebody like Bob Johnson who started BET to kind of hear his story and on, you know, I think he said he started with $500. So it'd be a good, you know, good dinner table conversation. Yeah, man. Love, love the roundup there. And Eddie Murphy with anybody would, would, would be worth a, worth a visit at that table. He definitely could uh, bring some laughter to any scenario. So let's jump in here, Sam. First off, I wanted to thank you, man, for uh, the collaboration with Chef John Cleveland at Post and Beam on the Creole chicken bowl that uh, is being offered at uh, every table locations, man. Thank you for, uh, for helping to uh, give the go ahead on that one. Are you kidding? Thank you. Like we, we, we got the better of that deal <laughs> in a good way, but like that's an incredible dish and incredible partnership for us. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, man. It, and it is for us too. We love the association with you guys and your team's just been a, a real pleasure to work with every time we interact. So well done. Um, so look, you know, we're, we're coming out of a, a crazy, crazy year plus, right? I mean, 2020, even into now 2021, you know, this is just unprecedented with all that we've endured and, and seen go on and, and continues. I mean, you know, we can turn away from the news a little bit more these days, but now it's vaccines and variants that, you know, we're, we're talking about. So, Sam, you know, um, in, in looking at your model for every table, it seems like the perfect model for the time. And I know that you got heavily involved with the city providing meals for the elderly and homeless. But set that up for me a little bit. How does the every table model fit the demands of what we've experienced lately? And you, and you were ahead of that. So, I mean, you must have been thinking about something uh, before the rest of us were. Yeah, I would say the... The two big topics are food and inequality. And so on the food side, you know, we're sort of at the end of a 50-year failed experiment on how to build a food system. And what I mean is, you know, 50 years ago, the food system was just starting to industrialize. In a lot of ways, the modern food system is this huge achievement where we solve for convenience and price price and taste. And I'm talking about all the things in the grocery store, the corn pops and the fruit loops and the ice cream and 
also the fast food, the you know, McDonald's and Taco Bell, etc. Like, say what you will about them, but they are convenient, super cheap, and really delicious. The problem is that we did this without any understanding of how this was going to impact our health. So what has come with this food system built around junk and processed food is sickness across the board. I mean, some of the worst, basically the worst health crisis in mass that has ever been seen. And so there's a big movement that every table is a part of to, to really replace the food system with what it should have been in the beginning, which is, you know, creating the same things, tasty food, super convenient and super inexpensive, but made with full fresh ingredients so that it's healthy. That's one thing. The second thing is inequality, where, you know, this is a country that was built on this idea that anybody can come in and work hard and take risks and really become something and make something of themselves. And, you know, for a long time, it's sort of interesting when you think about how race is a factor in that, because, you know, for, you know, for our entire history, that wasn't really available to black people and people of color. But it certainly was available to the rest of America. But now, because of this crazy rise of effectively aristocracy, which is, you know, entrepreneurs who make so much money and, you know, the people that work at McKinsey and, you know, there, there's just no longer social mobility for anybody. And that is true for people of color. That's also true for sort of the rural or evangelical sort of white community, the conservative community, which in my view is sort of like what's behind this, you know, rise of Trumpism. And so you've got this sort of like perfect storm of inequality where it's not working for black people and people of color, which it hasn't for so long. And now it's also really not working for anybody unless you were born into the most affluent neighborhoods and you can afford these private schools and you go to Harvard and then you get an internship at Goldman Sachs. And so every table has really created a company that is a solution to both of these things, which is, you know, both creating a food system that works for everybody made of healthy, fresh food, um, but also a, a pricing model that is inclusive of everybody so that, you know, Right now, sort of healthy food has become a luxury product, and every table is creating a system where, you know, this isn't just for food deserts, or it's for everybody, but the differential pricing means that it's inclusive of everybody. Wow. Yeah, you said a lot there. Before we go further, I wanted to just kind of go back for a second to what you were able to do during the pandemic, Sam, because that was just incredible. I mean, you scaled up. I think I read somewhere from like 30,000 to 180,000 meals a week. That's right. How the hell did you do that? I mean, I got to tell you, it was probably the most painful thing that I've ever been through. And I didn't even take the worst of it. But, you know, we were scaling from 30,000 meals to 180,000. And at the start of the pandemic, we were in a 4,000 square foot kitchen. And in the middle of that scale, we also moved to a 30,000 square foot kitchen. So for half of it, we were cooking food in the 4,000 square foot kitchen transporting it over to the 30,000 square foot one, packaging up. We had to, you know, we hired something like 200 people in a matter of two months. And also, you know, we're, we're getting refrigerated vans from all over the entire country sent to us so that we could lease it so we could fulfill the need. What a mission. I mean, that that's just incredible, man. That That's... I. I I was following that story and I was just so proud of, of you and what every table was doing. 
Um, Chef Bryce, your background fighting for food justice and social equity. I mean, what a perfect alignment for you, you know, with with every table. So how did you first hear about every table? What was your impression when you found out about them? And, and when did you start? When did you start working with them? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take the last question first. I started last September 2020, so almost approaching the year. Mm-hmm. Um, I met I met Sam on paper before I met him personally when he started his uh, nonprofit, which was called Grocery Ships. Now it's called Feast. So at that same time, Brad, I'm, I'm actually I was working for American Heart Association. You know, I have a culinary background. I'm a chef and I was leading a healthy cooking program with American Heart Association, teaching kids in South L.A., East L.A., Long Beach, Santa Ana, um, nutrition and, and healthy cooking skills. So one of the schools that where we started the program at first was manual arts. So ironically, one of the uh, administrators there sent me a paper and said, hey, this organization called Grocery Ships, they want to use one of our bungalows for a nutrition education program. You're in the culinary world. I trust your opinion. What do you think? Um, can you just look at it? And I was like, sure. I looked at it and I was like, this sounds amazing. It's definitely needed. You know, tell uh, Sam, I don't know him, but if he ever needs somebody to come in and, and maybe talk to the participants, do a demo to please reach out. He took me up on that offer. I came out to the classes. Sam was leading the classes. And so I always talked to Sam about this a couple of weeks ago. We were doing an interview with a candidate and I was like, look, I saw, you know, Sam was, you know, committed. He's been doing it. He's been in the trenches. So sometimes when people see somebody, you know, later on, they think, oh, they haven't really put in the work. But, you know, he was in there putting in the work. And so we built a relationship there. Um, and then we served on the L.A. Food Policy Council leadership uh uh, circle here in LA and just build a friendship there and sit on a couple panels. Um, and so when I heard he was starting at every table, I was like, Hey, this is, Hey, this is amazing. So glad I've always said that someone needs to create a model where you can get healthier food in underserved areas at an affordable price. So I'm glad you did it. Then I started stalking him from there. Like, Hey, you need any help? Hey, what do you need? Hey, let's talk. And he, I'm, you know, I'm still trying to figure this out. You know, let's just can talk, talk what you're thinking. And so we just kept, you know, kept in contact. And then last year, ironically, you talk about the pandemic, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, you know, I was, you know, thinking about my next move, whether it was going to be with American Heart Association or whether it was going to be someone else. And Sam reached out in like at like March or April and said, hey, I have I've had this concept and vision around social equity franchise program and really providing equitable opportunities for entrepreneurs from marginalized communities and, and black and brown folks to potentially own an every table store without the typical upfront costs or, or, or needing intergenerational wealth. And I was wondering, you know, if you'd be interested in let's, let's have a conversation and we're looking for an executive director to really bring this program to, to light and codify it. And so we had conversations and, you know, to your point earlier, Brad, your, st- your statement about I was like looking at my background and what I believe in and what I've been doing in, in South LA for the last 20 plus years. I mean, it seemed like the perfect fit. And so I joined the team last September. And the last thing I'll say is that I was like, I, I love I love doing something that's audacious 
and, and being alongside people who have vision. Because as you know, you know, everybody will say, hey, I knew you could do it after it's done. But when you're, you know, trying to do create something that's never been done, everybody's like, ah, I don't know about that. It's funny. My father had a saying, you never have enough partners when you're trying to raise money and you always have too many when it's time to split it up. <laughs> oh, I love, I love that. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. And, and Chef, I want to come back to um, the, the program because I, I love it, man. And I and there's some questions I want to ask you about and dive into that a little bit. But first, I want to segue over to Sam and dive into your book, For the Love of Money. Uh, I'm sure the title got the uh, got the OJ's attention. Um, I love it. But so let me let me read off a couple of things that have been said about the book. And it really kind of helps to tell your your really interesting journey, uh, Sam, and what led you to you know, make the moves that you made, which I, I think are, you know, a pretty interesting tale. So for the love of money brings you into the rarefied world of Wall Street trading floors, capturing the modern frustrations of young graduates drawn to Wall Street. Polk's raw, honest and intimate take on one man's journey in and out of the business really gives readers something to think about that CNBC. It's compellingly written unflinchingly honest about the inner journey Polk undertakes to redefine success. That's Forbes. Vivid, picturesque, and riveting, the New Yorker. I mean, that's some pretty high praise, man. So talk to, talk to us a little bit about the book. And, and I also want to understand a little bit more about your background, Sam. Where did you grow up? And, and and what led to the start of your career on, on Wall Street? Yeah, so, you know, the book sort of takes you through this journey. And I think what's sort of interesting, at least to me about it, is that, you know, Wall Street was a place that I went to sort of solve a problem that I grew up with, which was that, you know, we grew up, you know, sort of low, lower middle class in Glendale, um, but... You know, my mom was a nurse practitioner. My dad was a salesman who was sort of trying to start businesses. And so we were always sort of on the edge financially. And so, you know, there was plenty of times the cable would get turned off or, you know, we didn't have the car number of cars that we needed or, you know, stuff like that. And so for me, I, I grew up with this tremendous amount of insecurity about money. And I remember when I was a kid, at some point I just said, you know what, I'm going to find some job that will allow me to make $100,000 a year year, no matter what, because that's what I need so that I can feel safe and secure. And so then, you know, I got into Columbia sort of, you know, I don't want to say a lucky break, but like, you know, really had to work for that. And then, you know, and then from Columbia, I went, you know, I, I started to realize that all these big Wall Street firms were recruiting from this school. And so it was almost like, it's sort of like this American dream that I was talking about. It was almost this like step up in sort of class from where I was to this future where all of a sudden it was totally normal to make a million dollars a year. In fact, if you made a million dollars a year on Wall Street, you were not doing so well. You know, the guys that were making a hundred million dollars a year that you were trying to get to. And so for the first sort of several years of my adult life, like I, I climbed that ladder and I climbed that ladder really fast. And it was only at the end of that, that I started to sort of second guess this whole structure. And, you know, the stuff I talked about with inequality, I basically realized that, that that's what I was sort of part of. And it wasn't that you know, I didn't like the money or I didn't, but, it, but it, it, it felt like there was something wrong in the system and it was okay that I was benefiting from it, but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Interesting. Um, and, and explain to me. So, 
I'm pulling a, a quote from, um, I think it was Bloomberg back in 2008. And this is obviously pre every table. Sam was a senior distressed trader at King Street Capital Management, one of the largest distressed hedge funds at the time. Stress was his operating principle. So for, for me and for some of us, you know, listening here, what what is a distressed trader? What what does a distressed trader do? Yeah, so distressed, the way I think about it really is like the Navy SEALs of Wall Street. And what I mean is, you know, distressed is the term for companies that are either going into or coming out of bankruptcy. So so companies in a lot of trouble. So the most, you know, most sort of traders on Wall Street or bond traders, they operate in the investment grade world, which is like solid credit. So there's, you know, bond Bonds trading from 8% to 7% and stuff like this. Whereas in distress, you'll have bonds dropping 70% in two days. And so, you know, there's this term that goes around about getting your face ripped off and you're getting your face ripped off, you know, in every sort of week, basically. And so learning how to be a distress trader is like is both learning how to deal with the crazy volatility of that, but also coming to understand the bankruptcy process and all the sort of behind the scenes negotiations about when a company goes under, who gets that value and real fortunes are made. You know, you think like a bankrupt company is like it's the end of it, but actually in a lot of ways it's just the beginning. And if you can buy the company at its lowest price, then you can make a fortune. So for example, like Lehman Brothers, everybody knows Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. What they don't know is there was a huge credit derivatives auction of all of the Lehman Brothers bonds that cleared at eight cents on the dollar. And those bonds ended up two years later being worth 50, 60 cents on the dollar. So if you were able to buy it then, you would eight times your money in two years. Wow. Well, so let's, okay. So 2008, Bear Stearns goes down. Lehman Brothers goes down. You said the structures we thought were stable were disappearing in front of our eyes. You left the company in February of 2010, frustrated that while the country was suffering from job losses and foreclosures, your coworkers were worried about their bonuses. But you're on Wall Street, so that can't come really as that big a surprise, right? I mean, that's that that's the 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 environment you're surrounded by. But what made it at that point, Sam? What what clicked for you that started to make it distasteful? Would something shifted for you? There were there were two things. One is this idea of a sort of meritocracy. So I, you know, I was so proud of having having gotten into Columbia and then so proud of having made it onto Wall Street and then moving up the ladder of Wall Street. And, and what you're told over and over is you're the best of the best. And this is all about sort of meritocracy. And then sort of like the rest of America, I saw the 2008 crash and financial disaster that it really was caused in a large part by the banks themselves. And then you sort of saw how power worked in some level where the banks were responsible, but they were the ones who got bailed out and everybody was taken care of and actually made plenty of money during the whole thing. And so I started to be like, what's the point of this? Like, if it's a meritocracy, great. I like competing. I'm an athlete growing up. But if it's not, then it's really just an aristocracy. And then at the same time, I was reading Taylor Branch's three-part series on Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. And not only was I just captivated and blown away by the courage of those activists, 
this, but you know the structural problems that they were fighting were still very much in effect. And you know, King in the last years of his life was you know went from a not that he changed, but went from a civil rights activist to an economic rights activist and started saying, you know, what's going on? Like poverty is the greatest form of violence, and where is the opportunity? And so I, I was sort of faced with this truth, which was that I was part of this power structure that wasn't a meritocratic world, and I didn't believe in that. So what was the point of trying to get to the top of this world that I didn't sort of believe in anymore? So diving into um, Taylor Branch's trilogy, right, and and gaining some knowledge, maybe I'm sure that you are aware of the civil rights movement and Dr. King, as you know, most of us were and are, but that gave you a much deeper understanding. And is that where this idea that there was something bigger for you to do that was more soul serving than what you had been doing? Did that come from the experience of diving into Taylor Branch's work? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, everybody knows about Martin Luther King, but not everybody knows about Fannie Lou Hamer and Ralph Abernathy and Bob Moses and and reading about the sort of current, literally like life risking courage and, and you know, courage in, in with courage with such dignity, right? Uh, you know, nonviolent protests and taking beatings to, to show the world effectively what was going on. And it was that it was sort of that I realized that to me, those folks started to seem heroic. And I, I'm not trying to put myself in their category, but they were inspiring. And I realized at the same time, there was bankers and traders on Wall Street who were getting wealthy. And it wasn't so much that I you know, judged those traders and thought that they should be, you know, riding buses um, in the South. But I did see that you had a choice with what you were going to do with your life. And at the end of the day, would I rather sort of like look back? And again, I'm not saying I am because it's high praise, but like, do I think that Bob Moses had more to be proud of at the end of his life than a managing director at Goldman Sachs? I do, 100%. But before I turn back to Chef Rice, I mean, as you're talking, you made me think of a, a, a couple of things and I just wanted to wanted to touch on and it. And it's, I, I guess, kind of a question, but more of a thought. And maybe you can finish it for me. You know, given what we've seen this last year, and I did a lot of reading about the um, income gap and the wealth gap and, you know, what even Bob Johnson, Bryce, you mentioned him earlier, had finally come out and said, you know, he was in favor of reparations, like it was going to take $14 trillion or something like that, you know, to, to start to close that gap. And, you know, Sam, you come from not a wealthy background, right? You work your butt off. You get into Columbia. You you aspire to make a hundred thousand dollars a year, which you know is a respectable amount of money. Maybe not on Wall Street, but fair amount of money. But you didn't come from privilege, and then you get into this world of privilege. You see what that's like from the inside. Of course, you deal with some stress and you, the, the financial collapse and all of that. But it's not a natural trajectory to me that you you experience that life and then you come back. And you say, no, that's, that there's, there's something else that I'm, that I'm looking. And that's where I, I don't, it's kind of a question, but it's, I'm looking for you to finish my thought. The answer is that I wanted it all. You know what I mean? Like I, the, the problem with being a hedge fund trader for me, and I could see like, you know, it, it was almost like I was working at this distressed hedge fund, King Street, which is still the top 15 largest funds in the country. And I, and I was working 
literally every day sitting 10 feet away from these two billionaire partners. And so it was almost like the, the fantasy was sort of revealed and I could see them and they weren't terrible people. It wasn't that. It was just that what they were doing with their lives was sort of moving money around. And to me, there wasn't any, I don't know what the word is, inspiration or value, like true value in that. And so I, I left Wall Street and for a time, I, you know, I, I, it was sort of like I foreswore all of that and I just focused on nonprofits. And then when we sort of started to think about every table, it was really like I was sort of integrating the sort of two parts of me where it is like deep in my bones to care about social justice and, and really, you know, I remember Tavis Smiley, who, you know, was an early board member for every table, you know, made this comment once that, that he, that he thought justice was wanting for everyone else's kids, what you want for yourself, for what you want for your own kids. And I thought that was a hundred percent right. And so that is deep inside of me. And at the same time, I do have, and actually I'm an increasingly growing sort of respect for the American dream and capitalism and entrepreneurship. And so I, I guess I just wanted it all. And in some ways, like, I feel like lucky in that regard where, you know, I have this job now that I wouldn't cha- trade for any other job in the world because if, if, if we do realize our audacious vision, as Bryce calls it, then I will be rich and I will have that privilege that I talked about. But at the same time, we will have created a more just and equitable world. And sort of unlike the Wall Street that I left, if it doesn't work, I get nothing and we all get nothing and, you know, we'll be fine. But there is that sort of like elemental risk with it, which makes me feel more, more fair and like I'm doing something that matters. Well put, man. Thank you for, for that thought. So Chef Bryce, um, and by the way, my, my wife and I are huge German Shepherd people. And uh, I have seen you with your uh, beautiful black German Shepherd. Uh, many of your pictures posted on Instagram. And we, we actually had a black German Shepherd, Shepherd that passed away several years ago. Uh, just a beautiful dog. I think he's about a year old, is he now? Yeah, just a year. Name is Cosmo. Still tearing up everything. Still, you know, running around like, what can I tear up next? You know, but but you know, sweetheart. Those dogs are sweethearts in there. You know, as you know, they're extremely intelligent and loyal. Oh man, and just the best companions. I saw you posted a picture of you and the dog on the beach in Malibu, man. And some of my best times were just walking my dog. The hikes we took. You know, I mean, that, that's just a very peaceful state of mind to be in, the, the connection that you have. So we don't you know, I know I don't take advantage of the beach enough. And so it was like one of those times, like I got an hour. Let me let's just go out there and, and hang out for a minute. And the thing about it is like exercise and just being out in nature, like a lot of the issues that you or things that you may be thinking about at work that you want to solve. It'll it'll click in your head. And you're like, oh, OK, yeah, now that makes sense. So we all we all need that space. No question, man. Environment definitely can, you know, change your whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling. You change the room and you can change the space and you can change what's in your head. So getting outdoors is a great thing. So, Chef, you're a native of Michigan and uh, we'll, we'll call it Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor adjacent, since you, you mentioned a couple of cities nearby. Um, you attended the HBCU Howard University. Fantastic school as well as culinary school uh, once you landed in L.A. And you work with some pretty big names, as I mentioned, Magic and, um, and the like. So tell us a little bit more about your background. What was your major at, at Howard? 
and how and why were you drawn to the work that you had ended up doing? Yeah, yeah, Howard, I, I studied education and um, with a with a, a minor in partying, so but <laughs> and, and networking and interacting, and so ironically, Brad, like my first. Yeah, my second job at, in college was at a restaurant and it was it was called Trumpets. It was owned by, you know, speaking of entrepreneurs, it was a black, an older black lady named Shirley Cavanaugh. It was in DuPont Circle. I don't know if you're familiar with DuPont Circle area, Northwest. It was below level. Um, it was a jazz uh, soul restaurant. And I had a I had a friend who came over to my apartment one day and said, hey, you know, I'm working at this restaurant and I was watching TV or something. And I'm like, yeah, like, so how much money do you make? And he's like, man, we make sometimes six, seven hundred, eight hundred dollars a night in tips. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. He's like, yeah, like sometimes a thousand dollars. He's like, have you ever worked at a restaurant? I was like, no. He was, I said, but if you give me an interview, you know, I'm, I'll try to make it happen. And so he, he, he kept to his word, got me an interview. I go into the interview. You guys will, will love this. I go into the interview. The, the Shirley's uh, son is the manager. He's like, hey, you know, uh, DeMarco said you're a good kid. You go to uh, Howard. Have you ever worked in restaurants before? I'm like, no. He's like, okay, we'll come back tomorrow. Have a, you know, wear a white shirt and black pants. This is the extent of the interview. So I come in, I come in the next day and he's like, hey, yeah, uh, you have table five, six, seven, eight, and nine. I'm like, what? Table, I got how many, what? I don't even know what's on the menu. He was like, you'll figure it out. So it ends up being a disaster. People are asking me for cognac. I'm bringing vodka, probably dropped a couple of drinks. So at the end of the night, so it's a family affair. Her sister is the bartender. She says, hey, I know you go to Howard. You seem like a good kid. Uh, if you want to keep working here, why don't you come in about an hour early, study the menu, come in an hour early, and I'll kind of help train you. And so she did that. So I ended up working there, staying there, you know, throughout my, my tenure at Howard and it was true. I mean, we used to make, you know, one time Miles came through there and I think I made $3,000 in one night in tips. Wow. And so, but it was at that point where I fell in love with just the, the fast pace, the energy of the people, the room, the, the fact that you would come in and sometimes you don't know what's going to happen. You know, I felt like I thrived in those type of situations. I don't need to to be in a situation where everything is planned and figured out. I can, you know, be able to function, you know, if things are a little bit, you know, topsy turvy. And so the restaurant industry, as you know, you both you both you gentlemen know that it can be, you know, day second to second. There's always something changing. And so and I just loved, you know, to give and serve people. You know, that may sound corny, but that's just been in my DNA. I come from you know, people, like I said, my grandparents and then my aunts and uncles, you know, it was always about service growing up. And so I thrived in that environment. I ended up moving up before they closed down. I was ended up being a supervisor. And so when I, you know, left college, you know, I came to L.A. and I worked in restaurants and I taught during the day. And it was one day I was working a 14 hour day and I talked to my father and he was like, hey, I don't know if this is sustainable. Like you can't work 15, 16 hours, seven days, six days a week. You may need to figure out one thing that you want to do. And the next day I guarantee the next day I go into the school and it was a school for kids who got kicked out of L.A. Unified It was in South L.A. And so kids, we were trying to mainstream back um, small classroom, sweet kids, but just, you know, grew up in, you know, environments where their parents were drug addicts, gang, you know, gang affiliated. And the, the leader, the, the president of the school said, hey, I know you're making progress, but 
we need to teach to the test. I don't care about the progress. I care about us teaching to the test so we can get money for the school. And so when she said that, I was like, oh, this is my prompt <laughs> to move on. And I just started focusing on restaurants full time after that. Ended up, you know, working with Starbucks in the Bay Area. And at that time, I had um, my ex-wife, her, her sister, became executive assistant for Magic Johnson. And so I said, hey, who do you have on your team? I noticed that you guys signed a deal with Starbucks and you're getting ready to open up Starbucks. You know, I have a background in operations. Do you have anybody who can represent you and really understand the business on your side? And she said, no, you know, I'll get you a meeting. Um, that took Brad like about a year. One day she called like on a Friday and said, hey, Magic said he wants to meet with you tomorrow morning at nine o'clock in L.A. You need to get down here. So I drive down Friday night. I meet with him, give him my spiel and my speech. He says, oh, I love what you're saying, but I have a guy named Ken Lombard, who is my president of J Johnson Development Corporation. You need to meet with Ken. So I know you know Ken. So I, I put together a nice proposal to meet with Ken. I sit down with Ken. Ken looks at the proposal and throws it to the side. It's like, hey, tell me what you think you can do. And so we had a conversation at the Starbucks in, on, uh, in Ladera. And then, and then he said, hey, let me think about it. That took about another eight months, you know, of me calling him every day saying, hey, um, calling him at his house. His wife politely said, hey, you just missed him. Call him at the office. office. Oh, you just missed him. Call him again. Finally, he said, hey, so here's what we want to do. We want to bring you down as a director of operations to help us with all of our brands, uh, Starbucks Fridays and the theaters. So in the midst of doing that and working in South LA, a part of what we really believe and what Magic and Kim believe is like really providing opportunities for employment for folks in the community around any business that we have. And so in the midst of that, you know, I met a lot of community-based organizations and leaders who were doing, you know, God's work, I call it, you know, getting people jobs who, you know, are, who have been, you know, formerly incarcerated or people who just have been down on their luck and they just need a break, right? And so doing that, I was like, I love doing that. I love operations, but I really love, you know, making people, giving people opportunities so they can grow and take care of their families. You know, what Sam talked about, you know, wanting what Tavis said about wanting what, you know, what you want for your kids, wanting for others. That's exactly it. Um, and so I was able to get people jobs that I still, you know, a guy, a young man hit me up on, uh, Instagram and said, Hey, you got me my Magic Johnson's theater. No one would hire me. Um, and you gave me that job and that job propelled me to what I'm doing right now and working in operations. So that's really, you know, at what's in my DNA. And so that's why, you know, when Sam called me about the social equity franchise program, like you said earlier, I was like, this is in alignment with everything I believe in. You know, I want to, before I move on, give definitely give props to Ken Lombard because Ken has been, um, you know, kind of a, a mentor to me and uh, definitely helped me to uh, find my way into a few deals that uh, we've done we've done together. And uh, I, I look up to Ken quite a bit. So definitely want to tip my hat. I'm sorry it took so long for you to get that meeting, but you got the job that you wanted. So it worked out. By yeah. the way, me too. I don't know if you know this, but Ken yeah. Lombard was a very early advisor to every table. Yeah. Uh, that Ken used to be I think I knew that, Sam, but yeah. Yeah, is he on the board currently? He's not on the board. He's on our advisory board. So I want to talk about this um, social equity program because, you know, as a, as a business owner myself, I know the barriers 
to entry, right? The, the financial challenges. And when you talk about opening a, a restaurant, forget it. You know, you, there are a lot of things that you might get money loaned to you before you get money for a restaurant. But, you know, when you talk about putting people in business, you know, we sold Post and Beam to John and Cle John Cleveland and Ronnie, his wife, and we made a very doable deal for them. We still own Post and Beam, the brand, but they operate uh, that location. And it was really important to me to be able to set up a young entrepreneur of color in business. And he had a running start and we were his training wheels. We still uh, counsel him. So with the program that, that you guys are doing, obviously, if you're putting people in business that haven't had a lot of experience, it's got to come with some training. So talk about the program a little bit. Tell me about the kind of training wheels and, and mentorship that, that you offer so that folks have a you know running start at success. Because you're talking about something, Sam and Bryce, that could change generational experiences for people, you know? So expand on that, Sam or Bryce, whomever wants to jump in there. I mean, I think, you know, Sam had, like I said, Sam had this vision in like, what, 2017 or 18, Sam. And so to your point, one of the biggest barriers of entry, you know, into particularly the restaurant business, business in general, but we're talking about, let's talk about specifically the franchise industry is, you know, that, that access to capital, traditional capital, and that, that intergenerational wealth where you have some you know, invest in the business. So it's really about, which was really unique in what we've done and transformative. It's, and Sam did a lot of research and really looked into the philanthropic world and said, hey, foundations have at their disposal, you know, a lot of them billions of dollars and they have a vehicle called uh, PRI, which is a program related investment, meaning that they can invest, you know, up to 5% or so I think of their, their assets into a company. It doesn't have to be a nonprofit. It can be a social enterprise for-profit company if it aligns with their mission. And so Sam went out and really sold, you know, a lot of couple of foundations on what we were doing in every table, but also social equity franchise program. And so we've utilized those investments to eliminate that barrier of entry for entrepreneurs. So that's pretty transformative and significant. The second piece is, as you talked about, is training. And so we're looking for folks who have, you know, leadership skills and experience, um, have, you know, are mission driven, but come from backgrounds where they just haven't had the chance and they don't have the capital, but they need some support. They may not be, you know, they're not the tenured business folks that have been in the industry for five or 10 years. And so our training program, so once folks get interviewed and make it through the interview process, which is a six stage process, then they're going to be trained between six to eight months um, on everything, every table. And so they'll actually come in as store managers and get store management training, run a store. They also learn about the whole business, you know, because we have an e-commerce business, we have a smart fridge business. So spending time with our leadership within our commissary and really learning about how every table functions. And then also we're providing leadership courses. And so everything from, communications and public speaking to financial planning and management, not only for your business, but also for your personal. Um, and then also civic leadership, like how do you step outside of the four walls and grow your business outside of, you know, in the community. And so all of that is folded into the training program and, and then they're applying their learning, you know, every day. And so one of the things is that you don't have to make any food. You're, there's no kitchens within our locations. And so, as you know, Brad, being a veteran, that, that eliminates a huge complexity. And so we, we feel like 
you know, with the way we're setting this training program up and the guidance that we're and the resources that we're providing, not only through training, but afterwards, that folks will be able to own multiple locations, those who do well. And so, and then, you know, on the back end, they pay us back. Our, our, our build-out costs are between two hundred fifty dollars to $300,000, which is pretty low. And so we have it set up, you know, favorable terms below market interest rate that they would pay us back, you know, over five years once their stores start to become profitable. And so, you know, the long-term vision and goal, you know, our work isn't done to your point until we see people who, like you said, are, you know, become economically mobile and are able to create some wealth for them for themselves and their families. And so, you know, it's a pretty big, big uh, responsibility, but it's something, you know, when Sam talked about risk, you know, towards when you were asking about his book, about his book, I look at it like every day, I'd rather take a risk on trying to do something that's transformative to change people's lives than doing something that's just, you know, individualistic, right? Well, it's that comprehensive approach, too, that you guys are taking on. Sam, what, what are your thoughts about the program? Are, is it playing out the way that you envisioned? Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, if you talk about vision, it's, you know, I have this vision of, you know, whether it's a big news story or, or what, but about, you know, one or two or three of our franchisees, you know, first moving into, you know, a big house in a beautiful neighborhood that they're proud of. Like, you know, we've got Dorcia, and not to reveal too much about her life but but you know she's a single mom of kids and she lives in a tough environment with a lot of violence around and it's difficult for her children and so you know wanting to see that success is the vision and how the you know how the program is going i think you know chef bryce has done an incredible job building this structure and programming and i think your point about the holistic nature of it is really important because you know it includes how to be an operator how to which is not easy like it's you know running in every table it is easier than a full service restaurant 100 percent, but it's still top operationally but then also you know being an entrepreneur as you know means you have to think about everything and then on top of that there is from my perspective this potential for you know life-changing wealth but it's also like there's a lot of things to think about with that as well for one it's like that's not going to come right away like you've got to really build this business and own this business and you know anybody who's been an entrepreneur knows what it feels to white knuckle it as you're going to bed being like, I'm not sure this is going to make it. And they're going to have some of that too. And then if they do sort of make it into the big leagues, there's all this stuff about how to figure out, you know, for example, one of the things I asked Dorcia to do was read this book, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is basically like basic stuff about how to think about wealth and building your family's wealth. And, and so there's all of this stuff that is at play in this sort of simple, small model. Yeah. As you're, as you're talking about that, I'm envisioning, you know, that it's, it's just not getting the people started. And even with some training, you know, it, it's ongoing, it's life changing and uh, it, it can be disruptive before it settles down and you find that comfortable cruising uh, altitude. Sam, you know, your, your Wall Street background obviously must have played a part in your financial approach to, you know, what you're now doing. But, you know, the, the names that you attracted, um, how did you get those folks to believe? in the vision what was i mean you're a very compelling guy i get that as is chef bryce big handsome great smile i mean that that gets you in the door sometimes but 
then you got to do what you got to do, right? You've got to, you've got to be convincing. You've got to believe in, you got to sell. What, what do you think it was, man? What, what was the, the, this, the pitch that got folks to say, Sam, I'm down with this. Well, I think there's, you know, two things. There's the, you know, what you talked about in the beginning, which is like, this is an idea whose time has come and it's sort of a, a perfect moment in the world. Um, but what's also really interesting, like, you know, we raise money from, you know, pure foundations who just care about making the world a better place to some of the most voracious sort of capitalists in the world who see this as a huge financial home run. That is the sort of answer to your question which is that, you know, what we're trying to solve is this huge problem of basically you can call it like healthy fast food or, you know, the next McDonald's. And there is so much good in that for the health of the world and the economic support of the world. But also it's literally the biggest, like if you think about our market opportunity versus Erewhon, Erewhon's a great business, right? But they're they're only going to be in the high. Whereas if we work, there will be more every tables than McDonald's and Subway's combined. And so that's what people are interested in. I want to do a couple of more questions I want to get in before we run out of time. And Chef Bryce, I want to toss this one over to you because, you know, one of, and you listen to Sam and he's very compelling and you can get yeah, behind that and understand why that would make perfect sense. But then I have dealt with our community and trying to feed them. And when we tried to change what their idea was of what a restaurant should offer in the community in a black neighborhood, we got pushback. We didn't put salt on the table. We made the portions, you know, reasonable size portions. There were certain things. We had a vegetable and herb garden. As I mentioned, there was pushback, man. So as you're trying to sell this idea of healthy eating, that's been, you know, part of your MO for a long time. What what's the how do you overcome that? How do you convince people that, you know, you can eat at Doolin's, you know, sometimes, but you really got the balance of your diet needs to be, you know, what it needs to be. How do you make that case? Yeah, yeah, there's there's several different ways. And, and by the way, you know, I was a customer in, in Post and Bean the first day and, and didn't eat any salt at the table. So, you <laughs> Good know, to know, everything has always been delicious. But Thank you. I think, you know, one is the thing that jumps out to me now is like what we're doing with the program and what we do with our hiring is that you, you know, you create and build relationships and create um, opportunities for folks from the community who live in the community to have a piece of ownership and equity in what you're doing. You know, our managers come from the community. They speak to customers every day. They're on the front lines. They've actually been able to convince people. We just had, I just had a story from one of our managers who said, you know, a person who came by a couple times to your point and said, ah, this looks like it's probably too healthy. I don't necessarily want to eat it. She's like, well, just try a sample. And that person is a customer, um, you know, to this day, a loyal customer to this day. We have folks who come in in the community, in the communities like, you know, like you said, in Compton, South LA, who are saying, hey, I've been eating every table, you know, consistently, you know, my blood pressure has gone down. So I think, you know, it's a couple of ways. I mean, it's a, it could be a longer haul. I don't think you come in and you preach to people, you know, you don't come in and say, Hey, I have the answer. You come in and say, Hey, I like to be part of the solution and I would like for you to come alongside with me. Um, and so, and then what, what happens is eventually, you know, those folks who are loyal, those, those people spread the word, 
Um, and then you build, you know, you build from there. You're not going to change everyone's mindset, you know, overnight. And so, but I, I definitely think it's like having folks who are from the community, who are part of your team, who are in your stores, who are part of your leadership, all plays a part in, in building that trust, right? It takes, you know, like you said, it takes time. I mean, I got people in my family who, you know, in the beginning when I, you know, first started, you know, really focusing on eating healthier, I would try to ch change their mindset. There was pushback still to this day. So it's like, hey, I know, you know, I just I push back against myself. But I think it's, you know, changing. It's also changing the environment as well. Right. Mm -hmm. But once you, you know, Sam, we talked about, you know, we would love you know, maybe not right now, but later on for there to be copycats because we understand that there needs to be more choice. I always say that it's easy to say, hey, I'll eat healthier when everything around when you have options. But when you only have you have limited options, that's what you become accustomed to. And so we're changing that, you know, every table is coming into communities and trying to work to change that. But we're not doing that alone. We're doing that alongside the folks, you know, within the community. That, you know, the real chicken bowl, for example, it, you know, as I look at that, that's been one of our like top 10, five, 10 sellers since it came out during Black History Month. So, and Sam, that, that obviously, that, I mean, that was part of the vision. It wasn't just affordable food, but it was nutritious. But you also had to make it taste good because, you know, you're competing against salty, sweet and everything else that everybody, you know, McDonald's French fries, you know, they've got to prefer to eat a healthy meal from every table. And I mean, that's the thing is like, you know, you know, you talked about Doolin's or Harold and Bell's and these are, you know, great restaurants that you're going to go on a Friday night to Harold and Bell's and get the fried catfish. And every table is probably not your like Friday night date restaurant. And when you think about sort of the difference between South L.A. and West L.A., for example, you know, People think about food deserts, they think there's no grocery stores, but actually there's grocery stores, right? In South LA, there's Food for Less and Superior and Gonzalez Market and, you know, and, and there's restaurants too, you know, significantly less, but, but still, Harold and Bell is a great example. But what there is not is that whole swath of convenient, fresh, healthy, and for the people of Brentwood, relatively affordable food. So things like sweet green and tender greens and lemonade and creation and flower child and um, press juicery and all of these things that make it easy to eat healthy. And if you think about, you know, most people, that, that's the thing is like you said about this battle with yourself is like they want to be eating healthy for most meals. Now, there's still everybody, me included, is going to have my, I'm going in and out and I'm not just getting the fries, I'm getting the animal fries. You know what I mean? Like, but, you know, let's say Wednesday, 12 p.m., I know I'm going to feel better if I eat healthy. And so for us, it, it's like making it just so convenient and healthy and affordable and tasty. So it's just the easier choice. Just amazing that it can actually be done. You know, you can, you can actually do that. So, gentlemen, we're, we're winding down. As the national news fades from social issues around racial justice, income disparities, wealth disparities, opportunity disparities, and with a new administration taking up a little bit less oxygen, right? We can turn away from the news for a little longer than the previous four years, but those conditions persist, right? Your mission sounds like the right antidote to take a chunk out of some of these things on that list. 
So this is kind of a philosophical question, but you are two really smart guys with vision and stuff. So I want to toss out to you, how central to a more balanced society is the availability of healthy, quality, affordable food? And does making sure everyone can eat move us towards something greater? Bryce, I'll let you go first, and then Sam, you can you can wind it down. Yeah, yeah, man, wow, what a, what a great question, man. I, I think that it's you know it's a human right. It's what if you look at the the health disparities in our country, and a lot of it has to do around preventable diseases. It's something that we really need to focus on and start making investments in on the front end. Um, and so I think that that's why it's so important because we all need you know nutritious food to operate and be at our best, but we also need to understand as as last year. Year, you know, like you said, last year in the midst, midst of the pandemic and the racial reckoning, one of the things that stood out is that I call it the, the great revealer. And so it was a time that all the things that we know have existed for a long time came to the forefront and was new for some people. But if we want to, if we want, don't want to go back and we want to continue to move forward, we need to start making those investments in social issues. And one of those issues is providing, you know, nutritious food at an affordable price for for whoever. For everybody within this country. Lovely. Sam, does does making sure everyone can eat move us towards something greater in our in our society in the world? It's bigger than the food. It, it's about, you know, can a company prove sort of what capitalism is capable of, and especially in this moment in reversing this trend of inequality? And can you create a successful, super profitable, super valuable company that is built on these foundational principles of equality and justice and inclusivity and start to sort of like put Push the lever in the other direction because you know if we if we fail it's, it's sort of just like local like nobody will remember but if we succeed then all of a sudden people recognize what is possible in the world like the, these problems that we've talked about inequality and like they are tearing at the fabric of this country and the whole promise and idealism of this country are degrading sort of day by day and. I'm not saying we are the chosen ones, but I, I hope there's 50 people like every table that are the way, the new capitalism, the way of a different way of sort of returning to the American dream and showing and, and creating like a, a society where that's not divided, but where everybody is a part of something. Well said. Well, I'll tell you, the every table world is the world that I want to live in and I want my son to grow up in. So uh, kudos to you both. Sam, last uh, last question for you. So Kimball Musk is one of your early investors. So when Elon takes his vessel into space, will he and the crew have a meal kit from every table on that voyage? You know what? To be honest, I don't care. And I, and what I mean is, you know, you know, there there actually is something I think truly noble about what he's doing in space. Like I really do think that. But I also think it's it's the same thing where you know America is so busy giving to developing countries, but hasn't figured out how to make things right in their own backyard. And so that's what I want is like you know Elon to land and take you know several of his billion dollars and put it into every table so that we can. And, you know, create a more fair world here. I'm with you, man. I just, I just envisioned every table and what you stand for as what Tang used to mean to like, you know, the astronauts. I'd like to see every table be that, that symbolic. But 
Thank you. Thank you. Chef Bryce, Fluellen, Sam Polk. Thank you both for joining me here at Corner Table Talk. It's really, really been a pleasure talking to you guys. And I'm a, a true admirer of what you're doing. Yeah, same here, bud. Thank you. So here we are with the segment of our show called How We Move with Ambassador Shabazz, my dear friend. Chef Bryce Fluellen, Sam Polk, every table pretty impressive um, endeavor, Ambassador. What, what were your thoughts? Well, no question. You know, every time I sit by or stand by listening to your interviews with the guests, I'm just really happy of what's emerging, what's, what's being shared across the United States and abroad right now, and their innovation. You know, I signed on with Every Table a couple of years ago when I heard about it. I was really moved with its with its thought process, hopeful that it would become what we're hearing, what today revealed. And it's certainly more than just if a table, right? You know, first you think it's about culinary and as it's been shared, it's about the balance of all things that bring one to that table, a shared uh, figuratively and literally. And, you know, I think about my childhood and my grand maternal grandparents, my mother's parents were leaders in the Booker T. Washington Tradesmen Association. And on my father's side, it was the Marcus Garvey Universal Negro Improvement Association. And both of them were not just about social equity. It was really about economic justice and the access to all things that enabled us to be um, proprietors of our existence, right? But once you had that bounty, you had the responsibility to share it. So that even the for-profit model of being fit in order to give is really quite refreshing right about now. The last couple of years, I've been an advisor to a a whole slew of young, I guess, Gen Z, influencers and um, young capitalists of source, but they all were interested in how to give back, how to be part of the world. They saw the inequities. They didn't understand the nonprofit model. They understood being fit first, you know, and so this was really significant. And so one of the projects that I'm working on um, for the last year um, and a half has also had team members, young, the students and, and, and partners, to really do some asset mapping, understanding what that is. If you put your own address into a Zillow and see what comes up in terms of yellow, red, green, where, what's in your neighborhood? What's in your friend's neighborhood? What's in your relative's neighborhood? And do a comparative. Schools, educa- in terms of education, are there stores? Um, why not? Why do we have um, food deserts? What causes that? That's also what makes an investor not consider your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. A lot of people before now didn't consider the, 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 the uh, drought to fulfill. They only went to where there was already a, an active population of potential revenue streams as opposed to what equity, what um, um, every table is doing. So it's really exciting to hear what these two brothers are doing. Um, It made me want to hear more and sit around them and understand their models and how they're being applied and tried and how when I look up and and, or fill in, you know, uh, that, you know, that location segment on um, on every table, it's not in my zip code. So how do we get it into this zip code? How do it, you know, I'm in Kentucky. How do we introduce the same model into an, an area that really is yearning to have this as a leading force or as an example 
And so, you know, I will find myself reaching out to them again to say, how can we be more proactive, faster, quicker? Um, we don't need to create new wheels if things are working. I like the meaning of the terminology, you know? And so it meets the things that a number of my colleagues and I are working on already in terms of the um, structured delegations, immersions that we're planning both in the US and abroad right now. Um, between those that are in study of those focuses as well as those who are leading and wanting to be part of th these respites that include all aspects of the ministries, ministries of education, ministry of agriculture, ministry of trade, youth and education and sports, all of it, because that ecosystem is essential for us to move forward. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, where they are, they're at the intersection of philanthropy, yeah. uh, smart business model, fulfilling a need, um, you know, when you talk about some of these underserved areas, food deserts, as as they're, you know, referred to, you know, you're talking about companies that look at credit scores in yes, particular right. neighborhoods, right? And do or don't make a commitment in those neighborhoods based on the, the credit score. That's the neighborhood every table is going into, the people who Absolutely. don't score highly and uh, but are in dire need of what they provide. But the balance of philanthropy and business model is really where I think, uh, and obviously fulfilling a need with healthy, nutritious, afford, you know, food, but they, they've just got the, they've got the scales balanced. You know, it feels like in the right, uh, to the right degrees. Do you, do you see it that way? Yes, I do. And, you know, now just really being buried in these communities and one-on-one -on -one conversations with people who are 75 and 25 and everyone in between realizing that the credit scores aren't because they're not capable of, of measuring up. They just don't know how. They don't know how to balance that. They don't know what to get rid of first in order to qualify. So there's a whole kind of socioeconomic understanding and clarity that's just never done with most people. Um, and so we have changed lives just in the last six months of people's credit scores going up 100 points. Wow. And that's nothing magical we're doing. It's what they already have. We're just moving the shells around a little bit and putting them on a on a kind of a lifestyle diet, you know, not food diet. Just in, you know, and I check in. I, I become my mother, right? Who, you know, when you when you know that call is coming through, they go, uh oh, they're going to ask me what I've done over the last thirty days. But just giving people the power to know that they can drive that shift, and then qualify. Right. And be part of a team. So no one is really hanging on this alone. We are all part of a kind of, kind of connect a dot. And that's what I also loved hearing um, Chef Llewellyn reiterate as well in terms of his journey up to prior to every table. And then what Mr. Polk also um, affirmed. Just really cool. Really cool. So are we going to see potentially an every table or two in Louisville? I'm going to contact them about that because this is certainly a place, you know, Louisville, people think it's in the middle of nowhere and it's kind of like a heart of the country in a sense, you know, in that it's the sixth largest convention city. But depending on just like New York, you know, New Yorkers don't always go to the Empire State Building. You know, everyone comes there as an epicenter. But have we checked in on, on making sure that everyone in circumference is just as fit as the tourists gets to experience? So I would love to see it in Louisville. And uh, through your connections, uh, I'm going to contact our guests and find out what does it take because we need it here and it just needs to, to duplicate all over. 
if yeah. that's what the model is, right? Well, um, yeah, and I and I certainly would be happy to you know try to facilitate that as I would for anybody who's listening who might yeah. have an interest. We don't know their timeline, but uh, they are raising you know substantial money. I think he raised another sixteen million dollars in two thousand twenty yeah. for growth. So uh, the growth is planned, and uh, I think wherever there is interest, it would be great to know that and uh, share that, and you know, try to um, try to help every table along with uh, with their goal because I think well, it's a good one. Absolutely, and every time we refer to an area as a desert, it is as if there is no one else there, right? We know that that's not so. When you move Post and Beam into an area that was once called a desert. It flourished. When Magic Johnson went into that area and put down stakes, it flourished. So when you show up, people respond. So we need to do, treat it like the gold rush, you know, head towards it, put down stakes, honor the people and the socio-ecosystems that exist, um, enable them to feel like they're already a member of the family and the team and the dream, and then move forward. I have never found a place that didn't grow with what was being planted and it's didn't true. participate yeah it's so true yeah well we will leave it there and uh, ambassador shabazz we thank you for joining us it's always fantastic to talk to you and see you and so you. thank you for the guests that you continue to bring onto the corner table um because i'm never still but it's the hour i get to really pause and digest and feel affirmed with the things that i'm also journeying to do well, thank you, and I really appreciate you being a part of this. So uh, your insights are always welcome and enjoyed. So thank My you. Pleasure. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.